from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower this week at Climate Week in New York City. On this week's edition, Pepsi's sustainable farming vision, the biggest sustainable consulting firm you've never heard of, Danone's CEO on changing the culture on biodiversity, and the vibe from the United Nations Climate Summit. It's a Big Apple gridlock this week on 350. It's September 27th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me here at the Climate Week Hub on 46th and in, in Park in Midtown Manhattan is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather, how are you holding up? I'm holding up very well, Joel. It's great to see you in person. As always, but I barely saw you crisscrossing <laughs> here and there at various events. Um, I mean, there are 300 events this week in New York City as part of Climate Week, and I guess the United Nations uh, Secretary General Summit was part of that. Uh, but um, as we sit here in this bustling client hub, which is uh, sort of one of the central meeting points for Climate Week and with all the attendant background noise, uh, sitting here sort of a little bit of a respite. And uh, what do you what have you been running around and doing? Because I know that we, we've been ships in the night mostly and, and everyone I see on the street or at an event is like someone, oh, you're here too. But it's always, I ran into someone from UK, uh, Sally, you ran from uh, Forum for the Future jogging and uh, so early morning jogging and that's we had a great conversation about systems change anyway how are you doing great I've been doing a lot of walking not jogging and that's the best way to get around this week Uh, I took it I wouldn't say I took it easy but I took it in a very methodical way Um, that's the only way as a journalist I feel you can deal with this kind of stuff there's so many wonderful announcements uh, that are happening around this and plenty of follow-up stories but nothing that you can Unless you come in with a couple themes that you, you can't get your arms around them if you don't if you if you let the noise affect you. But um, so, what are the themes that you've been hearing? Okay, so what I did, um, I started thinking about this a couple weeks ahead of time, and have been following the thread of increased ambition. Right? If countries are not doing enough, what can businesses do? And there's been this realization that's kind of flowing through as people set their 2030 or their 2025 or whatever it happens to be goals that the Paris Agreement threshold, that two degrees Celsius threshold that we've been talking about and aiming for is actually not enough. That people need to get more ambitious. And when I say people, I mean everyone, but, but especially companies. So what you saw this week was a realization that organizations should be resetting their goals. And they're doing this with a, a science-based focus. Uh, so about 80, I think it was about 90 companies that actually came out and said, okay, we're, we're shooting for 1.5. We're trying to put into our operations the methodology, the science-based uh, thought to get there. And, and we don't care what the governments are doing. We, we just, we need to do this. Um, so even though they're all stalling, which they are, we can talk about that in a moment, but that was a little bit disappointing this week. Uh, there's a lot of you know, sort of non, non-commitments, if you will, out of the UN talks, at least, you know, as far as I've been able to read so far. Um, but I really kind of took away that, you know, the, the, big, the biggest champions, if you will, are getting more ambitious. 
um, with, with, with respect to their own operations, but also their, their supply chains. Yeah, the higher ambition, that's sort of the meme this week here in New York. Uh, and it is about how do we get to 1.5 degrees, because as you said, the two-degree goal of Paris is kind of outmoded. And, and what I've been hearing, uh, one of the themes is um, sort of a challenge to the private sector. What are you going to be doing between 2020 and 2030? 2030 is uh, the two things. One, it's the end of the sustainable development goal period. It was uh, uh, announced in 2015, a 15-year goal for uh, some very big, ambitious goals. We can talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. And, um, and then, of course, there was that uh, IPCC report that said, we kind of have until about 2030 to, fig- to, to turn this ship around, or we're going to start seeing things go bad in a, in a, in a big, much bigger way. And I've been hearing a lot of talk about that. Action is uh, TBD, but here's just one indicator, actually two indicators. Two different conversations I had, uh, I can't name the companies, but one is a global banking company, the other is a global real estate company, and totally unprompted, talking to their sustainability execs, they both said, you know, uh, I'm getting these calls from the CEO saying, what are we doing on climate? What are we doing? And it's like, have you been reading the sustainability reports we've been publishing for eight or nine years? And apparently not. And, but, and, the, and, this, and the CEO is, is saying, well, can we do more, faster? And that's really interesting. Now, I, it may be possible that I spoke to the only two companies that are where that's the case, but it's, it was so random that I, I, I think not. And to the extent that it even is, I think this is just the beginning of what we're going to be seeing a lot more. Having said all that, you know, and that's that's the good news, the optimistic part. I guess the thing that troubles me in all this is that um, all this is happening in the trying to change some very big things in the same system that created it, and so there's a systemic focus. You know, systems change, change being one of the the, the memes that we hear that really has not been present here. It's in other words, how can we make massive radical changes within the system that we have now. That probably won't be possible. So that was a sort of a contrapuntal uh, uh, pr- perspective of, of what's going on here. To go back to the CEO thing in a moment, for a moment, I, I had the pleasure of speaking to a couple of them this week, uh, including the Interface CEO, G- Jay Gould. And we actually talked a little bit about the role of the CEO because I, I, I appreciated, and I told him that I appreciated that he was the one having that interview with me. Not that I don't admire and totally respect and, and, and in awe of the work that our, our sustainability officers do, but when the CEO comes out and helps you, oh my God, it just makes such a big difference. And so I actually kind of challenged him a little bit. I said, do you talk about this on your earnings calls, your quarterly earnings calls? And he said, nah, not as much as I should. And I said, you should. And he said, well, and I said, you know, if they, they're not bringing it up. I said, well, then why shouldn't you bring it up? And so, and I asked him about, you know, who, if his board is, is getting it yet. And he said, they're starting to, but that, that also needs to change. So you go to your sort of yes, but um, mentality a little bit. Um, that, that, that remains a challenge, but I think that we are seeing a lot more of the thoughtful CEOs that are, that, are, that are starting to do this. I was struck by that number. Like, okay, so I think there was a specific number of 90. That they, they were the ones that were specifically involved with the UN Global Compact, right? I know there's more, but that's not that many companies, if you think about it, right? We need thousands of companies. And that was kind of what John Kerry was talking about um, in the Climate Week opening ceremony. He got out and he talked about World War Zero is his new campaign. 
and his thing is, you know, to, to your systems change thing is, we need to change the system. We need to start holding people accountable. And I think that's one of the amazing things that these, these young activists have done is they've really galvanized attention. And, you know, we're starting to call out names now. And I think that the adults, the, the conscious, practical adults are starting to pay attention. And I think people are going to be starting to hold, be held accountable. And I think that that maybe will change the system. I don't know. Maybe I'm just always the Pollyanna. <laughs> but, you know, I think that there's this higher level of accountability that, that was talked about this week, the need for it. Yeah, you're a little more optimistic than I am yeah. on that because I don't see that anyone's really talking about the bigger kinds of shifts cons on consumption, mm. on resource uh, utilization. Uh, it still is, you know, uh, great ambitious uh, goals and targets on ramping up renewable energy much faster and and more significantly than it already has been doing. Has been doing. Um, the circular economy has been a big theme here. I. I hosted a 90-minute, facilitated a 90-minute conversation at the World Economic Forum event on, on Monday this week around that. Uh, and uh, there's just been, you know, there's lots of money going on. I wrote a piece on it called Trillions being the, the, the word of the week, or at least how we've gone from the world of billions to the world of trillions. And we've seen so many uh, commitments and uh, predictions. Um, there was this uh, uh, Global Commission on Adaptation said that if we invest a little less than $2 trillion, we'll get a little bit more than $7 trillion in total benefits and things like that where there's an ROI. But again, it's still within the same system and no one's really talking about blowing it up. And, and, and you know, and, and understandably, because this is how they all are, uh, this is their, how they're held accountable by their shareholders, by society in a lot of ways. I just wonder how far we can get. And the other thing I've only heard a little bit about, Heather, is the social uh, impact side that there's not a lot of attention talking about the fact that, you know, the inequality. Uh, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, I attended a, a breakfast event that they put on on Wednesday morning, and uh, they were talking about that's one of the three big topics that they're leaning into along with food systems and uh, nature-based solutions over the, over the next uh, year or next, next five years, actually, maybe 10 even, uh, through the, through the, next, the decade about to start. And so I just wonder, you know, how much, you know, and then we've got the, the youth uh, and, and lovely Greta Thunberg, and who's been the talk of the town, literally. I mean, I have not been to an event where her name hasn't been invoked. And here's one of the more interesting ones. On Friday this week, uh, I hosted a, a, a half-day uh, aviation sustainability summit put on by United Airlines and the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, and and right at the top, flight shaming Greta and her sailboat uh, from to, from Europe, and the fact that in Sweden now flight shaming has become a thing, and there is real fear in the aviation industry that it's going to catch on. So the, here's this you know amazing 17-year-old who is being uh, demonized by the by the conservatives right wing there's a great piece in the New York Times on Wednesday about that and um, and and but showing up everywhere and just being as articulate and insightful as as anyone four, four times her age um, but there's still but she's in effect talking about systems change she not may not may not be using those words maybe she is I, I don't remember that but again nobody's really listening and leaning into that mm -hmm. you know ironically 
the flight shaming thing. Um, and if, if people do, if that does catch on and, and so forth, I don't think it will, but it's a, sh it's a bit of a shame because what I feel like we just, we need more empathy about other countries. I mean, here, here in the United States, we need more empathy about what's going on in, in developing countries. We don't know. We don't understand the culture. We don't understand enough about our own cultures, right? We have our own systemic problems here as far as inclusion and, and inequality goes. But um, it would be a shame if, if, if that sort of affects their sort of nationalistic attitude, if you will. You know, it's kind of a side effect potentially. But I was asking people a lot about the sustainable development goals this week because, you know, they've, to your point, they've been out there for about five years now. And, you know, we saw a flurry of corporate interest at the beginning. And then as people began to dig in, I think they felt overwhelmed, right? They're very vague, many of them. There's little points underneath each of one of them, right? There's 17 of them in all, and, and they're pretty, they're pretty, you know. They're, they're big ambitious goals, but there's 169 targets within that, and then there's some number of, I forget what they call indicators or something underneath that. So it, it is, it, it's vague, but there, there is a bit of a roadmap. Fair enough, fair enough. They're overwhelming. Yes. And, and that is the, the, the thing that kept coming back to me as I asked um, organizations about, I said, how are you building this into your, into your sustainability strategy you know what role are they playing and how are you measuring that like how do you talk about your impact against them and you've seen certain industries for example the, the mobile industry the carriers out there the gsma actually publishes a annual report on how each of their members does on the sustainable development goals and they have a score and no one does better than 50 out of 100 they're not doing very well but they're actually trying to be thoughtful about it. So you see little pockets of, of interest. I do feel like um, what companies are starting to do now is they're really saying, you know what, this is what we can influence. And they've, they've realized they really need to focus on that. And so they're getting their arms around it. Um, and I, I'm hearing more companies, DuPont, for example, has in the new DuPont, it's in, totally embedded into their, into their operating um, mentality. They're chief sustainability officer is not the chief sustainability officer. She's the chief technology and sustainability officer. And that thinking is embedded into now, moving forward, all of the R&D that they're doing. What impact will it have? How does it map to those goals? And that's really kind of a neat you know, shift, if you will, internally for a company. But anyway, so I was asking a lot about that this week. Um, I feel little buzzes of, of progress and little, but I do feel like the biggest problem right now and the biggest sort of gap there is the measurement. So two of the things that I heard a lot, and I, I have to say with more than a little bit of pride, um, uh, really mapped to the things that we as a company at GreenBiz have been uh, leaning into. One is circular economy. I and mean, that was a huge focus at the World uh, Economic Forum uh, Sustainable Development Impact Summit where I participated earlier this week. Um, really looking at, at what's going on, how do we scale it, how, how is it working. It's still foreign to a lot of companies, but there was just a lot of talk. This is not a marginal thing. This is truly uh, where the economy will be going, and it's going to be one of these things that's, I think, going to ramp much faster than anyone realizes, although it may take a while to do that. Yeah, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. Companies are looking, I mean, this, this sort of thing gets the CEO and the manufacturing people really excited. I did talk a little bit um, about the changes that, for example, Interface had to make in their plans, and it was, they were substantial, but they were strategic. 
Yeah, and, and Jay Gould from Interface, who you interviewed, will be the first to say this is really, really, really hard stuff, even for a company with a 20-year legacy of, or 25-year legacy of, of being a leader. So the other theme, and of course that maps, circular economy maps to our circularity conference. The other theme that um, is the finance piece. Uh, a lot about ESG and metrics, and can we, can we make this simpler to communicate uh, to investors? Uh, can we uh, harmonize the various standards? And by the way, can the investors step up in ways that they haven't? They're, they're showing some interest, but we talked about a lot of uh, the events. There were no investors at the table, no invest, or, or very few, you know, five out of 500 investors in the room. And, uh, and talking about, when I say investors, I'm talking about the big institutional investors um, that pension funds and, and, and the Black Rocks and State Streets and all those asset owners and asset managers of trillions and trillions of dollars worth of a- assets under management. This is what, something we, we're talking about at our annual Greenfin Summit. Of how do you align those two companies uh, a- a- that are reporting with the the asset owners and managers and and the ratings organizations and the banks and how do they all come together with a sort of a simpler way to communicate who's a leader who's not who's getting preferential loan rates uh, i learned something really interesting that uh, walmart has this project gigaton and uh, hsbc a uh, large global bank gives preferential rates to companies that are either part of Gigaton or making uh, hitting specific progress targets or goals on the uh, Walmart Sustainability Index. And when the cost of capital is affected by your sustainability leadership and performance, that's a game changer. So this whole finance thing is is really interesting, and I've heard that all over town. Yeah, ING has been doing a lot of work in that space as well. And I think the tough part remains, you know, what do you use to benchmark the progress? You know, because they use the progress to to say, yeah, you made that loan use some of the ratings right now. So there's going to be more scrutiny of those ratings out there as well uh, on the ESG front. So we have some clips to play from our our interviews this week, Uh, not necessarily about Climate Week or about the agenda, but just the conversations with uh, a number of uh, executives that we've encountered and set up interviews with along the way we thought were interesting. And uh, we'll be playing that for the rest of this episode. On Tuesday this week, I attended a lunch by a company called NG Impact, which is a new company that's really been around for a long time, rolled up a bunch of smaller companies, um, trying to make, as the name implies, a big impact. And with me here is Clinton Maloney, the Managing Director of Sustainability Solutions at NG Impact for the Americas. Hey, Clinton. Hey, Joel. Nice to see you. So, first of all, for people who don't know NG Impact, give us the thumbnail, the elevator pitch. Yeah, the thumbnail. So, we are dedicated to help implement the sustainability transformation at pace and scale. So, we know that um, 85% of companies and cities have incredible goals and targets, but only 15% of those are on track to deliver against them. So, our goal is to help um, implement uh, and get the roadmap right to make it fundable. And uh, in many occasions, we can also help finance the transition for some of those clients. So I'm impressed by the scale that you're already working at. You've got a million buildings for which you provide uh, energy and I think water, wastewater services. You're writing uh, a thousand new uh, power delivery contracts uh, every, uh, week. every week. And uh, and so so you've already got scale going on. This is part of a, of, a, of, a, of a bigger company that's already been working in the energy and in utility arena. 
You're talking now about something called zero carbon as a service. What is that? Yeah. So one of the things that we found is there's complexity for many companies in, in terms of getting to their zero carbon ambitions. There's a gap between what they can finance and uh, what they're able to, to move on quickly. Um, and we want to be able to help close that gap. So the goal is to be able to put together a rock-solid transformation pathway um, to be able to know what are the projects that we need to implement and finance, either from an energy efficiency or from a procurement point of view. And then how do we lay that out in a way that um, the CFO and the board is able to sign off on? And with the power of Engie, we understand the engineering techniques required. We understand the technology. We've got a range of digital assets we bring to this so that we can guarantee the value delivery um, at pace and scale that matches up with the ambitions around climate change and when our clients are setting zero carbon or science-based targets that requires uh, moving at a certain pace and scale and we can help deliver that. So for example this week at Climate Week uh, GE Renewable Energy announced a big carbon commitment and you're involved with that. Talk a little bit about what you'll be doing. Yeah, so GE Renewables is one of the clients that we've signed this week. We're very excited about their ambitions. So in alignment with their purpose and values, they've committed to going you know, carbon neutral by 2020. So they have a global manufacturing footprint, a global distribution footprint, and buildings. So what we can help them with is um, how do they actually transition to that uh, zero carbon uh, uh, approach uh, at pace and scale very quickly. So we can do anything from you know, on-site orders that identify a business case and opportunity for investment in, new, uh, in your equipment that delivers on that promise. We can also help with procurement of clean energy globally that helps meet uh, those ambitions very quickly. So, and then over the longer term, the, the view is how do we, how do we help you know, from an operations point of view to replace the need for those procurement contracts so that we can actually make sure that the business is as efficient as it might become over time. So very excited about their ambitions and what we can do is help guarantee the success at the pace and scale that they are looking to move. So how much of the toolkit to do these kinds of things, zero carbon as a service, already exists and how much of it is still to come and are you inventing some of it? Um, so we're definitely on the invention agenda. So we have 10 research and development labs uh, globally that are looking at underlying technologies um, that we will eventually be able to bring to market. Um, but I think there is so much um, uh, technology available today that is already in the money. The question is, how do you assemble the business case? And then, of course, being from a company like Engie, where we have a very low cost of capital, this is where we get the um, zero carbon as a service business model comes together. So if your cost of capital is something like 8% and NG's cost of capital is 2%, we can finance that transition because we know how to invest in these technologies. We have a longer term time frame uh, around that investment and we can deploy capital at much lower cost. So that means that the investments that some of our clients might be able to make in the future, we can bring into the present, which is part of what we're trying to do in accelerating this transition. You talked about uh, working with some clients on creating sustainability plans that go out 50 years. Uh, how's that, I mean, most sustainability executives I talk to are still grappling with their five and 10 year goals. How do you think about sustainability from a corporate perspective a half a century out? 
Yeah, so the ambitions uh, around a 50-year contract is a very deep long-term relationship with an organization like Engie. So um, you obviously need to think very carefully about the next two, three, five years and the technologies that are already in the money. And then because we have uh, the depth of engineering talent, um, we have a perspective on when the new technologies are coming online at the, and the cost curve at which they will be coming online. So assembling a footprint over time, we know what we're looking for. We know, we're looking for a certain trigger events or trigger prices, and then that gives us confidence that we can make investments over the longer term. Well, the theme here is a higher ambition here at Climate Week, and, and a lot of that's in the short term. So I hope that your short-term thinking is as ambitious <laughs> as your long-term thinking. Clinton Maloney is Managing Director, Sustainability Solutions for the Americas for NG Impact. Thanks, Clinton. Thanks, y'all. Nice to see you. During Climate Week, I had uh, the opportunity to catch up a bit with uh, Emmanuel Faber, the chairman and CEO of Danone. And we talked about a wide range of things, including a brand new initiative that was announced in collaboration with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. It's called the One Planet Business for Biodiversity. So first of all, welcome to Green Biz 350, Emmanuel. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and. Um, what uh, what can you tell me about the the backstory of this? So why why is this important? Why is this alliance? I mean, it's nineteen companies. That's a big group of companies, and they're big companies. Forward thinking, certainly. Why now? Um, and what are you hoping to accomplish? Um, well, I, I think it was a, a matter of meeting at the crossroad. The crossroad of the fact that. Uh, Agriculture so far uh, over the last 50 years have really focused on uh, volume and lowering costs and intensity. And uh, that has uh, related into monocropping, uh, which degraded soil, uh, which you know is, is meaning we rely only on nine plants for two-thirds of the total food in the world. And that's an unsustainable future. Uh, it's clear that it's a dead end. On the other side, we see also consumers now very interested in local, local food, local ingredients, understanding where and how they've been grown, traditional seeds. They want to see more of a choice, basically, and less of this big industrial model. And so when you have a demand and a supply, you put the two ends together, and that means uh, diversifying the way we go for agriculture and protecting uh, wildlife as part of the agricultural model uh, can become a mainstream. And it's not a CSR process, it's not philanthropy, it's about strategy, and this is why you've got these 20-ish companies, uh, $500 billion sales, uh, and CEOs interested in joining. So what are the, walk us through the three areas of focus, because there's some specific areas you're going to focus on. What are they and why? Absolutely. The first one is really, uh, we want to shift our practices toward regenerative agriculture. Regenerative meaning restarts from soil health, restoring the soil health that has been depleted. 40% of lands in the world are now degraded, 70% plus here in the US. Uh, so we really need, if we want to ensure a future for farmers, uh, we really need to make sure that we restart from there. It will sink carbon in the soil, it will save water, and it will create the basis for a biodiverse life on the soils themselves. The second is that diversity in the fields, uh, bringing more seeds, crops, uh, others that are being forgotten, unused, that are dying uh, out of the shelf, 
um, defocus from the mainstream ingredients that we're using in order to restore that diversity in the fields, but also in order to answer consumers' growing needs and, and, uh, and wishes. And the third is beyond the fields, protect forests, basically, and fight against deforestation, protect wildlife in a radically new approach. We know that we have technology now available for that, but we need collective intelligence, and this is the challenge that we have given uh, ourselves. Yeah, actually, I noticed that one of the members is Google, which I think will be contributing some of that intelligence. Could you tell me a little bit more about what your, you know, how could satellites and, and images help? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we now have satellite surveillance systems available and pilots in Africa, in uh, Brazil uh, that work and that are basically uh, giving the ability to monitor the land use whether practices are the ones that were agreed or they are not, whether deforestation is actually progressing or not. So once you plot the land clearly, you can track whether farmers are basically um, doing what they said they would do and, and people collecting from those commodities the same. So data is essential. Uh, image capturing is essential. We also have technologies that can be onboard commercial flights flying over those zones and now. And putting that at work at, at, at a local course is part of what this coalition wants to do. Will you prioritize certain regions? Um, we have a global reach and it's very clear that for many commodities you take coffee, vanilla, cocoa and many others um, they are global. Some of those are very local, like milk, for instance. Um, and therefore, we are not thinking about regions, we are thinking about commodities. And how are we going to create tipping points with enough of the large players that supply from these uh, goods uh, in any of these given commodities that can create a tipping point by changing the practices of the whole industry, basically? Mm -hmm. And what will success look like for you? I mean, what, what's the goal in the next year for this for this alliance? Yeah, the, the first year is really about getting all of this together and, and acting and, and running. Uh, we're just uh, launching now. So we will have an interim uh, call and report uh, about June next year um, to clarify the key commodities on which we are working, um, the KPIs and the indicators we want to follow there and the policies that we'll put in place. The next big uh, and super important date is the Kunming uh, Conference of Parties on Biodiversity uh, in China in October next year that will define the goals for 2030. And we absolutely want to be part of the people that are making recommendations. And at the same time, we will announce our own plan and probably with a bigger uh, number of companies around the table by then uh, for our 2030 biodiversity goals. Speaking of policy, what can policymakers and the finance community do to support these efforts? I think two essential things. One is really uh, shift the subsidies, agricultural subsidies around the world uh, from subsidies that are basically killing life in soil to uh, subsidies that will support biodiversity. That's an essential part of, of the agenda. And the second um, is, is really about creating a price mechanism, a valuation mechanism of all the incredible externalities that biodiversity is bringing uh, for all of us, for farmers, but overall for the whole of humankind. And just one final question. A lot of food companies are involved with this. I didn't name them all out, but I'll, I'll throw a couple out. Kellogg, um, Caring, of course, uh, L'Oreal, cosmetic company. Um, you know, what should 
Why should biodiversity be a concern for every business? Well, because it's about life. It's as simple as that. I mean, we've we, we've developed a model where we thought that technology and science overall could reinvent life and, and change its rules. And nature is just fighting back. And it's fighting back on everyone, not on food companies. It's fighting uh, on every human being. And climate change is about this. So, abs- you know, turning back to understanding that we need to work with nature and not against it because we think we're more powerful, I think is an essential lesson for us to learn from the last 50 years. And, and frankly, that's about the future of everyone. So that's why everyone should care. Over the summer, PepsiCo announced the latest milestone in its sustainable farming program. 100% of its North American potatoes are now sustainably sourced. That's 3.9 billion pounds of spuds used in products such as Lay's and Ruffles. Here to discuss that latest milestone, along with the goals of the overall program, is Christine Darty, Vice President of Global Sustainable Agriculture and Responsible Sourcing for PepsiCo. Christine, welcome to Green Biz 350. Thank you, Heather. It's a pleasure. So the sustainable farming program covers both farmers that PepsiCo sources from directly, as well as suppliers who distribute other sorts of crops. Give us a progress report on where the company stands with both communities. And why is this recent milestone for potatoes so important? For PepsiCo, we're a global food and beverage company, and we operate in over 60 different countries, and we source 25 plus key commodities, and we engage with hundreds of thousands of farmers. So for us, being a leader in sustainable foods and agriculture is very important. So PepsiCo's sustainable farming program is a program where we really engage with our farmers directly. We'll go into an area, we'll do a risk assessment, We'll look at the needs of those particular farmers. The beauty of the program is the farmers can be smallholders or they can be large-scale operations. But really what we want to do is look at the agricultural practices, the environmental practices, social aspects, and communities. So to your question around our Frito-Lay 100% sustainably sourced potatoes, We worked with our farmers in North America and Canada to get to this milestone. And the Sustainable Farming Program essentially looks at three different pillars. Those pillars are environmental. Are the farmers looking at the water stewardship, looking at how they reduce greenhouse gas and carbon emissions, soil quality, soil health? We look at the economic pillar. Do they have a farm and business plan? Do they have the way to produce efficiently? And then the social pillar. Do they look at the health and safety of the workers on the farm? Are there proper working conditions? So all of these pillars are very key, and we look at it to make sure that our farmers are meeting uh, specific standards. So... What technologies is PepsiCo using to improve traceability? I'm, that's something I'm thinking a lot about. So you're, you're looking for this information. What, what technologies are you using to find it? 
Yeah, so when we go into a particular um, farming operation, the technology can vary. So if you think about um, maybe a large-scale operation, we could engage with the farmer on GPS or drone technology or using smartphones to assess um, when irrigation equipment is turned on or turned off. Using uh, satellite imagery is now a big component in agriculture where the farmer can look to see the color of his or her crop and determine if the crop is receiving sufficient amounts of water or fertilizer. And the unique aspect of technology allows us to go in and pinpoint where changes may occur. So for example, if, we're look, if a farmer is using a drone that could provide um, unique locations of where fertilizer needs to be applied, that really helps reduce the amount of fertilizer because it's being applied at a micro level, a unique spot or area, versus in the past where a farmer may just be able to use an overall field spray. So technology is really, really important. Going to the other spectrum, where maybe in areas around the world where it's a small hold or a smaller operation, using um, technology for electronic payments or to allow that farmer to receive information on their phone about good uh, management practices is really moving the farming community to more of a professional level. You know, so when I look at these, some of these measures, um, especially in remote areas, I mean, they could be challenging for, for farmers to invest in. So how are you encouraging them to make these investments and how are you helping them invest in next generation measures such as these? You know, it, it seems like something that, that you must be helping them with. Yeah, so um, for us at PepsiCo, you know, we, we do have um, a priority in agriculture, and we call it our next generation ag. And it's really about looking at next generation technology, some of which we just discussed. But it's also looking at the next generation of farmers. And it could be how do we encourage um, the, the younger individuals uh, to go into agriculture. You may not know, but the average age of farmers globally is 60 plus years. And so we need to encourage um, more youth into going into agriculture. And then women. Women are amazing in the sense that in most areas, they um, are involved in agriculture in some aspect. And so for PepsiCo, we do have an initiative around empowering women in the supply chain, the agricultural supply chain. And we've engaged with a number of programs. We have a partner through CARE where we are really looking at how to provide tools, education, resources for women in agriculture, especially in the developing countries to allow them to be an integral part of the agricultural community. 
So as I was reading your update uh, and your information about this initiative, I noticed something about demonstration farms. Uh, so what what is this, <laughs> and what what is this organization? What is this initiative learned, and why is this something it plans to continue and expand? Is this like focused on specific crops or specific regions? What is this demonstration farm thing about? That's a great question, and this is really um, a shining star in PepsiCo's sustainable farming program, and really, I believe, is going to help us make changes in the overall food system. So for PepsiCo, we call it a demonstration farm, and we will go out into a community and look for um, the farmer that is well-respected and maybe an innovator or a lead farmer in, in that particular area. Then we ask the individual, it could be um, you know, a male farmer, it could be a female farmer, to portion off a portion of their land. Then we'll bring in technology, it could be irrigation equipment, it could be um, unique fertilizer, it could be mobile banking, it could just be some basic practices such as if you use fertilizers or other types of equipment, are you using protective safety gear? So we ask that farmer to portion off, we'll bring in the resources, we then plant the crop in the entire um, acreage, some into the demonstration area, some into the other, which is the control plot. And then we ask the farmer, open up that portion of your land to the other farmers in the community. Here's the beauty. Those farmers come in, they look at the soil, they look at the equipment, they look at how the crop is going, they can talk to that lead farmer. It's really about peer-to-peer, farmer-to-farmer learning. Farmers really trust their other community farmers. So for us, having that farmer as an innovator and a spokesperson on good agricultural practices is the win-win. So that's our demonstration farms. We have about a hundred globally and we're expanding and we're really seeing the changes in the community because farmers go back to their own fields and they want to implement some of the practices. I have to ask, are you helping, are you sharing this across the broader farming community? Obviously these are your farmers, but they probably do other crops for other companies as well. Are you encouraging them to share this information with your, you know, your peers in the food industry? Absolutely. If you, you hit it spot on. If you have a rotation crop that maybe PepsiCo doesn't buy, but somebody else does, if you're a farmer and you're working on good water stewardship for your land, that goes across all crops. And so PepsiCo believes if we're really going to make a change in the food system, we need to do that in partnership and we need to do it pre-competitively because a farmer has to be able to implement the practices in his or her crops throughout the growing season and not just for our particular crop. 
So, okay, <laughs> lots going on. And uh, I, I hate to ask this question, but I'm going to, because um, 2020 is on my mind. It's probably on your mind. And, and it's been sort of a milestone year for all of us for so long in the, in the climate action community. So as we look beyond that year into what's beyond 2030, oh my goodness, um, what changes can we expect for the PepsiCo Sustainable Farming Program? Ah, that's a great question. You know, part of our commitment, not only for 2020, but 2025, 2030, is all about continuous improvement and making that impact change. So if you, um, as you mentioned in our report, you know, PepsiCo, we have six priority areas. It's agriculture, it's water, it's our, our packaging and our product portfolio we look at climate, you know, doing our part for climate change, as well as the people in the community. So as we move on the calendar to 2020 and 2030, how do we get better, especially in agriculture every day? It's a journey and it's not a sprint. And so we know that it takes steps. It takes a community. And PepsiCo is really here to help support those men and women um, that want to make a change and are driving the change. And as the tempo picks up here at the Climate Week Hub, that's our podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. You can always check out our free e-newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday, five in all. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about how to get a free subscription. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. I'll be off next week, but Heather will be back with associate editor Holly Seekin co-hosting with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.